How do you find your voice? As a writer, how do you take what you know and what you believe to share your stories with the world? How do we let young writers know just how powerful they are and that what they do matters? Jericho Brown is the author of The Tradition, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. He is the editor of the anthology How We Do It, Black Writers on Craft, Practice, and Skill, published in July 2023. He is the director of the creative writing program and a professor at Emory University. Jericho lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Jericho Brown, welcome back to The Creative Process. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Well, we've just been enjoying your anthology, How We Do It, Black Writers on Craft, Practice, and Skill. And it's such a delightful, informative, inspiring work as you're inspiring as a writer and you've selected these other inspiring masters of the craft. So I believe you're going to share with us a passage from the book. But first, tell us why it was important for you to create this anthology. Well, I was going to read you just the first page and a half or so of the introduction, which I think will give an idea. Maybe I'll even read a final paragraph from the introduction, just because it gives an idea of how I came to doing this book and what's important to me about it. But just in case I don't say it in the introduction, I should say it now. I did this anthology for completely selfish reasons. I know what it's like to be a writer and to need advice, to need an example, to need a role model that you can't necessarily access face-to-face. -face. And I put this craft book together to create an opportunity for that advice, for those role models, for that access. And I think that what I'm grateful for about this book is that it is the book that I would have wanted back when I was a 19-year-old kid telling people I wish I was a writer. So I think that's the real crux <laughs> of the book, that I tried to make something that I would have needed. And because that's what I tried to make, I'm hoping readers read something that they need. You know, that's the joy of books that you come across something that you needed that you didn't even know you needed, you know. So I'll read that introduction. How We Do It is not a conventional anthology of craft essays. Our request of the writers in these pages was a statement quite literally explaining how they go about making what they make. What happens to move things from a blank page to a beautiful book? So this is a book of answers, answers to questions new writers ask every day about how to produce writing that proves their very identity as a practitioner. In other words, this is a book for anyone who is a student of the craft. More particularly, though, this is a book for younger and newer Black writers in undergraduate and graduate workshops and in absolutely no workshop at all. We hope teachers find these words useful for their students, and we hope students who have yet to find their teachers learn from these 32 pieces born out of absolute generosity and hope for the future of Black writing. We have arranged this volume in a way that we hope defies supposed genres set by genre. I am certain there is news for the poet in the essay on vernacular by Daniel Black. I believe the poet Evie Shockley is indeed in conversation with the filmmaker Barry Jenkins. That certainty and that belief come from how much I learned about my own work and my own attempts at work from the process of reading and organizing these essays. This is a book I wish existed 20 years ago. I would have led an easier life if it had. How We Do It is divided into eight sections with a range of essays in each. Who Your People, 
what you got, where you at, how you live in, what it looked like, who you with, how to read, and going back. The titles here are intended to communicate the fact that these sections could not be narrowed down to the kind of jargon with which writers are accustomed. We weren't going to name the sections voice, tone, setting, character, or good advice, because every essay here gets at more than any single topic. Who Your People, for instance, includes meditations on characterizations in speech. It has bare bones and real times directives from Crystal Wilkinson like, when you get to talk about your characters as if they are members of your family, then you've got it right. And an exhaustive list of questions any writer may want to answer when envisioning the full human life of someone imagined. What you got is a section on the uses of personal and communal experiences in writing, no matter how traumatic or dire those experiences may be. Here, Hurston Wright Foundation founder and writer Marita Golden advises, to write your story well, you must fully understand and be willing to stand up for its significance and necessity. And I'll just finish this portion with the end of the introduction. In all, how we do it is a kind of selfish gift. I want you to have what I always wanted. Here is an anthology that gives us modes to try on the way we might wear and change clothing. And these wonderful writers are proof that nothing ever beat a failure, but a try. Well, that's beautifully expressed. And I think that like that advice from Crystal, the whole book addresses readers, students of writing, and just people who enjoy reading as though we are part of this family of writers and readers and cuts through a lot of this, as you say, tone and all the jargon that seems antithetical of the art and the intimacy of writing. Well, I think one of the reasons why we stayed away from those things is that, I'll say it this way, one of the things that I learned from putting this anthology together, the thing that these writers have in common is practice, is discipline, is understanding that whatever they're doing, they have to keep trying at it for a certain amount of time before it even yields anything that they want to see. So that's really been the find. And I think that what we learn about character, about tone, about voice, what we learn about those things, we do learn about those things in this book, but we find that out through these writers' attention to discipline, their willingness to sit at the table, even if it's just for a few minutes, but to sit at the table daily, which I think is very important. Yeah. I mean, you just said you're just coming to us from your daily practice of waking up there, getting at it. Um, it, is, it is a job, but it's a joy and an art. And even though it's been a while since we spoke, I'm constantly quoting little things that you shared and particularly your own personal technique of the duplex poem, which actually just featured in an episode we published today with a Scottish music composer of all people, but he could relate because he accumulates sounds of birds and lots of little things. And it's that accumulation and then the good things stick and they shine and you polish those. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one of the things that I was glad about is that we also included people like Ernest Gaines, people like Barry Jenkins. Most of the book is brand new material, but there is some material that came out earlier that we republished. And one of those things is an interview that I did 
with Michael Dumanis and the Bennington Review. And what I love about that interview is that part of it talks about the duplex and how I came to make it. And one of the things that we really wanted to create in these essays is the opportunity for writers to sort of talk and from that talk for readers to be able to glean habits that they might themselves take on. And you're absolutely right. The duplexes were made from this habit I have of collaging lines. And if you have a bunch of good lines, you can make a good poem. So that's one of the things you get from this book, a discussion of form. And that doesn't just happen in poetry. I have to be careful. I have to remember that this book has filmmakers and fiction writers and memoirists and other genres. Tiffany Yannick, for instance, has an essay on form but it's about form in fiction, about frame, about various things that writers do in fiction and how fiction writers can make use of those forms in their own work. So there is something for everyone quite literally in this book. For instance, a writer like Ralph Eubanks, he makes use of poetry in order to talk about how he writes essays. Other writers are making use of fiction in order to talk about how they write plays or screenplays. And so that kind of thing becomes very important in this book, this cross-pollination. Yeah. And throughout the book, you also have it as though it's a dialogue between these distinct essays, but they are in dialogue. So one writer will pick up themes brought up by another. And I think also, likewise, with your duplex form that's bringing your different poems written at different times in contact and dialoguing to create a whole new form. Yeah, we got a really wonderful opportunity here because some of everybody's favorite contemporary writers are in this book. This book includes T.R.E. Jones, Terrence Hayes, Natasha Trethway, so many writers that we look up to. I mentioned Tiffany Yannick, E. Ethelbert Miller, Barry Jenkins, Marita Golden, Nikki Giovanni. So there are so many writers that are just very, Elizabeth Nunez, Carl Phillips, Jewel Parker Rhodes, just very exciting people we love to read, that we love to hear about, whose work we love, Jacqueline Woodson. And so one of the wonderful things that happens in the book is these writers aren't just writers, they're readers. So when they're talking about the work they love in their essays, they didn't know they were going to be in a book with some of these other people, but they end up discussing the work of other people who are in the book. And because they're doing that, that the book ends up creating this web which I think lets readers know just how intricate the world of influence really is for a writer and how you get different things from different people along the way. I'm excited about that, about the book. It's as if the assignment were write an essay that picks up where this other essay leaves off. But in actuality, that was never the case. We just got lucky. <laughs> and we got lucky enough that we were able to put things in an order where all of this worked out. That's beautiful. And could you expand a little bit more about the Black vernacular, this kind of access to intimacy and immediacy that's quite special, I feel? Yeah. You know, it'll be better for me if I could read you just the beginning of the first essay in the book, actually, by Daniel Black. It's called Rhythm in Writing. This is Daniel Black. I've always loved the rhythm of Black vernacular. It's in the preacher's hoop. Black women's talk at kitchen tables. Black men's guttural laughter in barbershops, the sway and clapping of the Black church choir. We are a people who move and have our being in metered time. There's no secret. Writers 
and scholars have documented this phenomenon since the 1960s. What is elusive is how to capture this pace, this cadence on paper. It's not simply an issue of writing in ebonics. Rather, it's the ability to seize the reader's consciousness and move it in musical time. That, my friend, is a literary craft, a stylistic device that is hell to master. But it's not impossible. Some Black writers are known for it. Morrison comes to mind, as do John Edgar Wideman and Sonia Sanchez. Indeed, the 1960s Black arts writers germinated in a time and space where the aesthetic emphasis centered around Black pathos. In other words, these writers meant to translate the beauty of Black idiomatic expression into literary artistic production. And this is the creative achievement contemporary Black writers inherit. However, mimicking it is another story. It seems the first secret is in the consciousness of word choice. So here's a point I wanted to get to that this book does that I don't think any other book does. It seems the first secret is in the consciousness of word choice. Check out this sentence. After sunset, Willie Joel and Bessie went to the bedroom and made love. This sentence is okay, but it doesn't carry the rhythm of Black experience. It doesn't show or celebrate the way in which Black folks had to make space for love when the entirety of their existence was subsumed in survival. But this sentence does. After the sun went down, Willie Joe and Bessie made their way to the bedroom and did what they could do. The difference here is several things. First, sunset is what the sun does every day. There is nothing particular about it. The sun going down, however, is Black people's hope for a moment of rest. It's the time of day when they get to breathe for a minute. Then exchanging went to the bedroom for made their way makes all the difference in terms of the rhythm of movement. Made their way implies struggle and difficulty, but it also implies desire and intentionality. It means they wouldn't be denied. And finally, did what they could do, does all the work to demonstrate the beauty of Black intimacy within the limitations of bondage and restraint. Writers are often taught, and rightly so, the craft of language economy, the use of as few words as possible to convey a point. And generally, this makes for a smoother style and less laborious text. However, sometimes, in order to establish a Black rhythmic pulse in written discourse, one needs more words, more instruments with which to play the symphonic complexity of Black life. I'll stop there. But I really love that essay. I love these essays so much, it's hard for me to stop reading them. But, you know, that sort of gets at what you're talking about, I think, as it relates to vernacular. Part of what Daniel's getting at, and I think every writer in this book takes this on, is something that I noticed in essays like Tradition and the Individual Talent by T.S. Eliot, When We Dead Awaken, Writing as Revision by Adrian Rich, The Negro Versus the Racial Mountain by Langston Hughes. There's something in all three of those essays from the past that says, in order to make what you make, you have to use what you have. You have to submerge yourself, immerse yourself in what you know, in your own vernacular, in your own tone, in your own belief, in your own way of doing things and telling stories. And that's how the writing can get done. 
And there's something about that moment that I just read from Daniel Black that seems to say, make use of your own vernacular, even if it does not necessarily follow what you're taught in your MFA classroom. How do you create a specificity of voice, a specificity of character? And sometimes that has to do with using what you know. Yeah, indeed. And I think it's very special, Black vernacular, and what it might share with different world literatures. I mean, I'm part Irish, and in Ireland, they were occupied by England for over a thousand years. So something arises in the human spirit, I think, when you're so dehumanized by one part of society that you have to insist upon your humanity. And one way of expressing it when you have access to nothing else immediately is through language. Just a little bit more intimate, a little bit more familiar in order to, you know, not be seen as a number, as an object. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There's also a way that in order to get any work done, you have to do your work no matter what anyone would think about it. I think writers of color are always dealing with something other than writing. And it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair that we have to think about the future of our writing or what the eyes of this or that person versus the eyes of this or that person might say. I have never been interested in doing any writing that would somehow throw off the fact that I was a Black writer. I've never been interested in getting rid of the fact of being a Black writer. I've never been insulted by being called a Black writer, and I've never been insulted by being included in an anthology of Black writing. I think there's a fear about that because people will say, well, if you do, that becomes all you are. And my frustration with that statement is twofold. One, what's wrong with being Black? <laughs> like, that's all you are as if Black is not expansive, as if Black is not all-encompassing, as if George Washington Carver was not Black. Do you know, you know all you are? Do you know what I'm saying? And so this idea of all you are that can come even from the mouth of an aspiring Black writer really is a sentiment that we inherit from whiteness. That Black is an all you are doesn't come from Black people. You know what I'm saying? So, well, that's my first trouble with that. And then my second trouble is no matter what you do, it doesn't matter anyway. If you're a Black writer, if you're a woman writer, if you're an, a Bangladeshi American writer, that is what you are. And you might write something that people think of as something that, I hate to use this word because I don't believe in it, but people like to say that it transcends that thing as if that thing is so low. Let's get on top of it. But in truth, everyone will still think of you that way. Nobody ever thinks that I'm not Black. After the Pulitzer Prize, I was still Black. And I love that. I'm so glad I'm Black. So I don't mind that at all. Like, why wouldn't I want you to know? Why would it be a secret? It's not a secret. I mean, when you read my writing and it's clear that you're reading the work of a Black writer, I don't feel somehow betrayed by that clarity. Yeah, it's a gift. And of all the things that marginalized people experience, one thing is that it forges, if I may say, a deeper reason for being because the things you have to say becomes just a bit, I would say, deeper. The book is also offering for the beginning writer great important questions in terms of grounding of character and setting and all these things. 
and also reminds or puts forward opportunities of how we open our lives to uh, inspiration and play. So it has all those elements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It definitely has all those elements. You go right down to instructions. One of the things that's interesting about Rita Dove's essay, for instance, in this book, is that she makes literal lists. I mean, even in this book, even the essays themselves, they take these sort of formal jumps that you don't necessarily expect. Rita Dove has an essay here called Seven Brides for Seven Mothers. And what I love about it is she says it's the list she makes for herself as guiding principles for her own writing. I'll just read to you some of the things that are on that list. What I also love about this essay is that she has these statements that are for her. And then she shows us in this essay over the years how these statements change, right? That, you know, she has this set thing that this is how you write. She writes down and she keeps it with her as her guy. And then over the years, as that changes, she's willing to tweak this list. So her aesthetics are changing. Her beliefs about writing are changing. And I love that we get to see what it's like to be a writer over the long haul. You know, we don't get to retire from this job. We're not like football players. So it's not over for us when we're 35. Do you know what I'm saying? I'll just read you some of those. I just want you to hear those early seven statements that she gave us. There's a little paragraph beyond each statement, but I'm not going to read the little paragraph. I'll just read the statement. Number one, no excuses. Two, notebooks, not journals. Three, every roadblock is an opportunity to explore the neighborhood. Four, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, but if swing is all it's got, you might as well join a band and take it on the road. Five, while you're writing, never think of your audience. They will find you. Six, each word is a living, breathing thing. And seven, silence is the shadow of the word. And then as the essay progresses, we see those seven change and morph into a different seven. So I just think that's really a good example of what you're talking about, that it gets right down to the exact, uh, a writer like Tiari Jones, for instance, her essay shows us when she was writing An American Marriage, the exact thing she was doing daily. It's almost like a journal of, oh, I did this. Then I thought about that. And that led to this. And I think it's really good for writers to see how things unfold for each other. I wanted to ask you about the how you living section specifically. Well, also what Mia said about opening yourself to inspiration and play. And you mentioned this in your previous interview with us too. It's almost an aesthetic to talk about dancing in the rain and letting your heart be broken and exposing yourself to the world. But in reality, I think it's very hard to look at a difficult, unfamiliar experience that you might need to pass through in order to open your writing to more possibilities and just say, I'm going to do that no matter how much it's going to hurt me. And this includes writing into your hurt and your trauma too, which is hard. How do you personally get yourself to do the uncomfortable things in life that may feed your writing? That's an interesting thing you bring up. And I think this is an answer that has changed for me over time. In the beginning, it wasn't so difficult for me because it was exactly what I wanted. I think it's really harder for younger people who are writers now because you have a connection to your parents nobody ever had to their parents before. Because of social media, because of text messages. You know, when I was a kid, we went off to college, you called your mom on Sunday, and <laughs> she was happy with that. You know what I mean? You also could 
become a different person. You could try on certain things about yourself that you might have been learning about yourself as you went. That's very difficult to do when you have from age six to age 26, the same friends. You know, you become friends with your friends in second grade on social media and they never disappear. You never disappear. And so you're always carrying with you the idea that someone else has of you. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you understand that if you do something different, those people who have that idea of you will think you're inauthentic or that you're a liar. Oh, why is she doing that? She wasn't doing that before because they don't understand that you could change. And so you're afraid to change because you don't want people to call you strange. So I sort of get that. But I grew up in a very different situation. I'm actually always surprised that I'm even in communication with my parents at all. I didn't think anybody in my family would want to have anything to do with me because that was the message I got from the world when I was a kid, that people do not want to have anything to do with queer people other than queer people. That was what I understood, that queer people themselves didn't even want to have anything to do with one another. And so I was putting myself in training, you know, from the age when I figured out that I was into guys, which was very young when I was in elementary school, I was in training for the day I leave my parents' house, they find out I'm gay and never speak to me again. Now, that's not how things went. But if you have that idea, if you already have the idea that everyone in your life is going to reject you, then that makes it easier to write. You know, because you don't think you have anything to lose. And part of our fear about writing that which is intimate or personal or traumatic has to do with the fact that we are afraid that, yeah, I'll have the good piece of writing, but I lose this really wonderful relationship in my real life. And I don't want to lose my relationships. Moving forward in time, I think it's different for me now, and I think it's easier for me to write into a kind of risk because I have trained myself to a point where I don't think about that risk as I am writing. I put myself in a position where I only have to think about that risk once I am at a point in a draft. And by that time, the poem is so good, I don't care about that relationship. But in the beginning, as I was saying to Mia earlier, my goal is lies. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, I might be able to use this piece. You take things down to the word, to the fragment, to the lie, in some cases to the sentence, to the paragraph and you start putting things together, then you can begin to put them together because they go together, not because they're about you in any particular way. For instance, in the notes app of my iPhone, I keep a running list of lines and I'll read some of those lines to you now. I'm just gonna pick from anywhere. <clears throat> I have a friend who won't sleep beneath a popcorn ceiling. I'm from the first westward expansion. Sometimes things are funny to me because they're not funny. I sold my way through school, the streets of dating, tragic lack of underwear. I want to listen to Ricky Lowe. The countries that win the most wars tell the most lies. I look forward to talking with someone about any subject. Whose teeth are in Gucci Mane's mouth? I tried to love you when you weren't looking. The country with the most control controls the most people. Black passing person of color finer than cat hair. 
So those lines have nothing to do with each other. When I get them, I write them down. But then when, you know, Sunday comes, I dump them in a Word file and I start moving things around. Now, as I start moving things around unconsciously, I end up saying things about myself. This is really how the duplexes were made. I didn't expect there to be a duplex about my father. I didn't expect there to be a duplex about rape. But because I had written the line, the opposite of rape is understanding. I had written that line and it just sort of sat there. So then as I'm writing these other lines coming out, then yes, I end up admitting to the fact in the poem that I myself have been raped. But it was not my intention. <laughs> I did not set out to do it. Once the admission is made in the poem, though, it becomes easier to work with because I didn't set out to do it. It feels more like a responsibility for the poem more than it is for me. I hope that answers your question. Because I think it's a really good question. It's a question I would say half of the writers in this book are trying to get at because, you know, many of the writers are teachers or have taught in some capacity. And many of us know that was our stumbling block. That was the thing holding us back from being able to make what we really wanted to make and put it out in the world. So it's a really great question, I think, that you're asking. And a lot of that question is so important because people pick up books like this book. And when they pick it up, that's all they want answered. There's so many other answers they get. They're like, oh, wow, now I know how to make a character. But what they really want to know is, how do I make what I really want to make without crying all the time when I'm not in the middle of making it? How do I make what I really want to make without feeling like I'm betraying my family? Do you understand what I mean? And I don't think there's any one answer to that question. I mean, those two answers are the answers that I have. But I think some of those other answers you will find from other writers in this book. And I think it's a question that we should keep asking. I think it's so interesting that, you know, sometimes you're chasing the sound of something, the music of something, and then the sense of it, which might be hidden in your unconscious from yourself, emerges because we talk with musicians and composers. And we were talking about this with Brian Eno has a project and he has almost like these little drawers, this library of different sounds. And you can get them working together, this collection, and then something emerges that's just so surprising that it becomes a kind of biography unintentionally. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you want. Also, part of the joy of what we do, you know, since I'm speaking for every writer, is discovery. Part of the joy of what we do is surprise. Part of the joy of what we do is that you sit down, you write a few words, and suddenly you see something, you see yourself say something you didn't expect to say. And so you sort of follow that thread and then you say another thing you didn't expect to say, right? And part of what you want is you want to find things out. You want to find things out about yourself. You want to find things out about the world. You want to discover things while you are writing the poem or the story or whatever you're writing. You're going to uncover your own history in a way that you haven't seen your own history before. Yeah, I think you covered this a little bit in your previous answer, but when I write about things that hurt, I don't feel like necessarily I'm betraying my family or something because they might read it and my mom would go like, that's not who I am, which is not the point. But she said that before and I thought it was kind of funny. But I feel like I'm doing an injustice to what I write. And I feel like it just cannot be captured in a way that maybe I just shouldn't try to make something called quote unquote beautiful out of it because the experience is not beautiful. And maybe I should try to process it another way that doesn't involve some sort of 
art, which I think in my mind is sometimes twistedly linked to the idea of something beautiful and what I experienced is not so beautiful. And so there's that opposition there. As someone who writes about heavy topics of collective individual trauma, do you ever face up against that indescribability and you feel like maybe this is just not a life topic that is fit for the life of writing? Yes and no. I think first, let me just say this. I never think about making something beautiful. Like when I'm doing the stuff you think that I'm doing with individual and collective trauma, I've heard this before. That's what I'm doing. And again, I'm happy. Sure, I'm doing that. But I do not think about that when I'm writing a poem. Not writing a poem. Thinking, oh, let me write this thing that expresses Black. No. Oh, my God. That would never get written. So I'm not thinking about that, but I'm also not thinking, let me make something beautiful. I'm thinking in the moment of writing, let's play Jericho. Let's have fun. Let's have a good time. Let's push some words around. Let's see what I can do. Let's feel some pleasure, similar to the pleasure we feel while we're reading. I think, you know, you read a good poem and even if it's really sad or if it's really full of rage, something about a poem delights you. Right. And I'm trying to get to the delight. And yes, somewhere in the midst of that delight, sometimes I do find myself crying. I'm like, how did my delight turn to sadness? But I don't think about making a beautiful thing or turning something ugly into something beautiful. That is not what I'm ever trying to do. I also probably think everything's pretty ugly. So, (laughs) or maybe I think everything's beautiful. It's one or the other is my real problem. Do you understand what I mean? So that's first. And then the second part is, yes, yes, there's all sorts of stuff I wish I could write about that I'm like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever make it. But I thought that about a lot of stuff in my life. There are things you want to get into a poem and there are things that you hope you never have to deal. But if you write, you will find that stuff that you never wanted to deal with appears. The question for me, at least when that stuff appears is, or maybe it's not a question. I mean, the answer is I'm a writer. Here it is. I guess it's time to deal with this bull. I guess I got to deal because I definitely did not want to write it down. So now that it's here, I guess I got to deal with it. Well, I read briefly the essay by Natasha Trethewey in your book, when she talks about the metaphor and how it entrenches us in a certain attitude towards the things we're describing. Like one thing off the top of my head is battling a disease as if a disease is like a battle that you can choose how to strategically plan around it. And that shapes a certain attitude towards diseases. And Natasha Trethewey talks about how the language right after Civil War was used to articulate this romantic attitude towards the Southern past and Black otherness. But as poets, I mean, you can entirely write a poem without metaphors. But personally, I deal a lot in metaphors, like a currency of my writing. How do we become more aware of the mythos, perhaps, underlying some of the metaphors that is, you know, a very basic currency of poetic craft? Yeah, I mean, I think we are becoming more aware, whether we like it or not. I think since the 1950s, people of color have been on a real examination and a real interrogation of language that we think in the United States of it is just normal idiomatic language. And I think many of the African-American studies programs that arose in the 1970s, for instance, really just arose because people were like, wait, is this what we think when we see the word black? Do you know what I mean? What do we mean when we say dark comedy? I think that kind of thing has been going on for writers of color in particular for a very long time. And I think part of the way to navigate that is to understand yourself as a powerful person 
I hate to say that because that sounds like, wow. <laughs> but, but, but you know, part of the trouble of these myths is that there is the oppressed and the oppressor. And if you experience oppression, then that puts you in the position of the oppressed as if you are a person without power. And yet in our lives daily, I think we move beyond that myth and we work and we live and we see things and we experience some, maybe not power in that capital P way, but we do experience some modes of power. And if we understand those experiences as modes of power, then we can begin to wield that power. That's what I love about the Natasha Trethewey essay, right? That if we understand that metaphors have that kind of power, then when we write our metaphors, we understand ourselves wielding that power. It blows my students' minds when I do this. But one of the things that I do in my classroom is I'll show them these phrases from Shakespeare that we take for granted as cliche or as idiom, you know, things that we say now, today. And I usually show them these phrases because they will bring in a poem full of cliches. And I'm saying, yo, this is not going to work out because these are cliches, right? And they're like, oh, I like cliches. I'm like, no, you don't. You think you like cliches, but you know what I mean? And I, one of the things I say to them is that our job as writers is to write what will become cliche, not to write cliches, but to be original enough that we make something that people are still saying, that we say the thing that characterizes thought on a subject for hundreds of years to come. And if that's what you're doing, that's pretty powerful. You're in a position of power. And so I think that's how you, I don't even want to say combat. Do you know what I'm saying? I have to understand what I'm doing, what I'm doing it. And I think it feels like it to me, what I'm doing when I'm writing a poem is making a world. And if I can stick to that, then I have to believe that once a poem is out in the world, another world has been made. Another way of living, another way of thinking, another way of seeing things. One single poem is a way of seeing things. If I believe that, I mean, I'm saying stuff like that all the time, but if I believe that and I'm a person who made the damn poem, I'm a person of power. Nikki Giovanni writes in her essay, Craft, that I have no craft. I only have language in which I try to weave. What? A something. I have a love of quilts. No matter the weather, I weave my words into something to make me warm or keep me dry. Part of craft is what we call skill. But another part, I think, is a mediated honesty with yourself, thinking and feeling and creating art without necessarily knowing the how of how you know what is poetic. How a line from a movie or just a fragmented lyric of a song from the stranger in the stall next to you is just so beautiful you think it has to be true. I think craft depends on being honest with not only how you write, but what you're writing about, and what compels you to write, which is how you're living. The swing and staccato of how you and your people speak. As readers, we can critique craft. But as writers, I think it's important to set aside the projected literary criticism of our future end product and tune into what in ourselves cries out to be crafted and to become a thing in the world. I think it's also important to question what we're calling good craft. like. Why were we taught that a certain economy of words or a certain pattern of rhythm or a certain flavor of metaphor is effective or pleasing? The aspects of what we call craft or good craft might originate from particular culturally and historically shaped fascinations with certain fashions of scene setting, character development, or poetic musicality that are by no means definitive. This isn't to say that anyone's own voice in writing should be purged of all cultural influences to reach for some perfectly authentic and pure individual voice. 
Rather, I'm saying that as a writer, I want to ask myself, is this poetic rhythm I've read or learned about how I feel my life meets out its moments? Do I perceive the world stripped down to Cormac McCarthy-esque twangs of short, solemn sentences, or in a maximalista flurry of images all ribboned through one another? In other words, what about my life, my family, the way I tie my shoelaces and talk to strangers and laugh when I shouldn't, what do I already know without knowing that is already fertile ground for my craft, which I should commit to practicing saying and writing aloud for its own colorful sake? Indeed, before we start speaking of craft comes an honest discovery of its wordless primordial forms already habitual in our lives. And now, back to the interview. Oh, poetry is very powerful. It's not the popular medium it once was, but there was a time people would go to war with a, a poem in their heart, right? Mm -hmm. And we still have these powerful instances of poetry that we've so absorbed into our language, as you say, that they become cliches that we've forgotten. We don't experience them as language anymore. In fact, they become a moving image that's embedded in us. And it's so lovely, too, then what happens when the classics or certain texts can be owned by different cultures, can travel. Like we did an interview with the Classical Theater of Harlem. And so then Shakespeare's works take on a whole new meaning and resonance, you know, right within Harlem. And you can see some of the same issues being replayed. I remember one, oh, this is just a side note, but my grandparents used to Sit I mean, their English was very good, but they would trade cliches or sometimes it would be lines from Shakespeare. It was all the same to them, right? <laughs> they, would sit they would have a ping pong back and forth between the quality of mercy is not strained. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, my grandfather would say something else. It was all the same, but it became something completely nonsensical. <laughs> but it was a part of improving their language. And I'm so glad that you collected this essential handbook, which is so easy to read, which doesn't read like a craft book, but can definitely be taught in schools. It's not like lessons, but if you really pay attention, you can learn so much from it. And I know you must have had a checklist, but it doesn't seem that way. But I was wondering, I know that you are also doing some other projects as well as your writing. You have a podcast as well. And just tell us a little bit about, you know, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I have a podcast. It's called The Slave is Gone. It's the after show for Dickinson. Dickinson is the Apple TV show about Emily Dickinson, which looks at her life as it was, but also makes her life contemporary in some ways. And I love doing that show. I host it with Brian Genet. It's one of... The things that I've really been excited to do, because I love Dickinson and I love reading Dickinson. I love that we get to bring her back into the conversation a little bit more. I love being a part of that. But I also like hosting the show and I really want to do more things like that. Like I didn't understand how much I would enjoy doing something like that, but I really want to do more things like that. There was something about the process of it that I enjoy, you know, timing and, you know, the thing you're doing right now. <laughs> And I'm in a PBS special that's premiering this week, I think, or maybe next week called Southern Storytellers that's coming out. I have this book that just came out. I just finished editing the selected poems of a poet that I fell in love with when I was younger, who's no longer with us, the selected poems of Reginald Shepard. So there's a lot going on. And now that I'm sort of coming to the end of all of those things that are going on, I am happy to return to the writing of my poem. But I'm also writing some other things. I'm working on a screenplay. I'm working on essays. I'm always working. You know, you got to keep working. <laughs> I know I'm just bringing this on you, but it would be nice to have you read one of your poems as well. We've always enjoyed that. You know what? I'll just read you 
Since we're on Zoom and since this is sort of a special moment that we're talking about making, I'll read you the poem I'm working on, which is not that great yet. <laughs> so I'll have to read it to you from my phone because I just started, you know, you get a few lines and you start working on them in your phone. And then before you know it, you're just working on the poem in your phone. So I'll read it to you. I haven't even put it in a Microsoft Word document and looked at it. And as I read it, I'll probably see things I want to fix. This is actually what I was doing before I got on this call. <laughs> you don't love me. I was a grown man in my own home when I stopped using mustard. By that time, I had knives. I wasn't stealing plastic ware from Wendy's. I spread mustard on my sandwiches because my dad spread mustard on his sandwiches. How am I to distinguish myself when everyone wants to tell you a story? I don't mean to offend, but I hate mustard. Can't you taste how gaudy and yellow it is? And when it stains, throw the whole shirt away or use it to wipe your runny nose. I don't know what else I do because my dad did it. I don't know what else I hate and do. I fear I could leave a yellow stain on you. Of course, you don't love me. I look like my father. Thank you so much. We're very honored to have, I guess. <laughs> it's so apt because that's the craft and that it comes in, as you've been talking about your anthology. I want to say we had many people signing up to take part in this interview. So Eli sent in a question. Although How We Do It is an amalgam of many other voices, do you feel that curating this collection has galvanized any personal, professional, or pedagogical change in yourself? Hmm. That's a really great question. The answer is yes, but I don't know that I can characterize how much or exactly in what ways, because the book is still so new. I'll say it that way. So some of the things that I've said here on this show are part of what I've learned from the book, but encapsulating it in some great statement at this point, I think I need a little more distance. I get it when you I come back from more readers saying, oh, they got this and they gave them the courage to do this. It's true that what you learn from your own work is very different after a book comes out as opposed to while you're writing the book. You do learn while you're writing the book, but then when you see these discussions about a book happen, you know, I try not to get into them. I try to watch them from afar, but you know, this is one of the good things about social media is I can troll and stalk and secretly see people say a thing or two about a poem or a book that I've written. It's really nice because then you see that you've said something that is true, but you didn't necessarily know that it was true. And you learn that's who I am as a writer, or that's how a poem works, or that's what I learned about myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also the orality when you're doing readings, also podcasting, you're a natural at that too, because it just has that other layer of meaning that it's like, wow, was that in it? You know, on the page, it's like a concept. And when it's in the world, this physicality. So I asked you before, I don't know if your answer is different now, but, you know, as you think about the future and education and teachers that were important to you and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, it's a great question. You know what? Let's use what we learned here today, which I sort of know, but maybe I hadn't characterized in this way before, but I would like for young people to understand uh, just how powerful they are, just how much what they do matters that they really can make changes that change themselves and change their communities, change readership, change what a readership can be, change people's idea 
about what a writer might look like, for instance, that we do have agency, that we do have power, that we can make differences. And I also would like for them to know that in order to do that, you have to make it a habit of trying. Nothing beats a failure, but a try. Of course. And thank you for being a voice of power, for empowering readers, listeners, writers. Thank you, Jericho Brown, for sharing how you do it and for bringing us how we do it, gathering these voices of Black writers on craft, practice, and skill, and just the honesty of your poetry, which brings beauty and understanding to the struggles of our lives. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Henny Zhang, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Henny Zhang and Eli Boom. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.